Ever sit down in front of Spotify or your music streaming service of choice and think, I want to listen to some great music, but I just don't know where to begin. It can be daunting, especially for those listeners who are always on the lookout for elusive new thrills. Allow us to help you out. We are temporary fandoms. Sometimes fans of new stuff, sometimes fans of the old, sometimes fans of forgotten albums by well-known artists, at others digging bands that a couple of weeks ago most of us had never heard of. Today is one such week. We'll be listening to an artist about whom little seems to be known in the West, but who we're assured are massive in their native Japan. Let us take your hand and guide you through the complete discography of a band. You can listen at tempfans.com, on Beat Rehab, or anywhere that you normally find podcasts. Or in our show notes, you'll find a link direct to a Spotify playlist where the show is cut together with the tunes we're talking about. Like, subscribe, buy a chic button badge, help us keep this juggernaut rolling. But for now, just simply enjoy the brief but electrifying career of Japan's number girl. Konnichiwa, Hajimamashto, you and... Uh, no, 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 I've done it wrong, done it wrong. Everybody <laughs> will know. Start, starting again, starting again, in three, two. Konnichiwa, Hajimamashto, Watashiwa, you and Des, Dojo Yoroshiku, as I've just said in flawless Japanese, uh, I'm Ewan. I'm Nick. And welcome to Temporary Fandoms. Um, this one's a bit weird, actually, because usually... The bands we do on the podcast, we've covered on the Facebook group that we bang on and on and on about, but this time we haven't. So if you're listening to this as it comes out, it's a perfect time to come and join the Facebook group. Links are in all the descriptions. And actually, you can have your say if you've got something to say. Um, as you know, sometimes we do bigger bands. We've done Bowie. Sometimes we do more obscure ones. We've done Whole Surfers. Um, I'm hoping this is more on the more of the more obscure side that we've done. Um, also because thank you for your reviews. Number one, my name is spelled E-W-A-N, um, but that's an easy mistake to make. And secondly, commercial leanings, motherfucker. I don't have commercial leanings. <laughs> thank you for the review. It was lovely. That, um, guy, that guy, the guy who said that, you and he's clearly your number one fan. You, well, you, oh, that, that's obviously weird, right? I mean, well, yeah, obviously. I mean, <laughs> Exactly. Um, I'm the charming well, yeah, and witty uh, one. <laughs> Wait a minute. Anyway, thank you for your reviews. They're really, really, really nice. Um, if obviously the first time we get a negative one, I will probably cry and the, the show will get cancelled. But at the moment, it's all going rather well. Leave the reviews, subscribe, Apple um, Podcast or Podchaser. Podchaser is very good at the moment. Um, all this month, for every review, they donate twenty-five cents to Meals on Wheels. So you can say something, click a like, and I think some charity stuff happens. Anyway, we're going to get cracking. Today's band is a band called Number Girl. Um, usually I ask somebody else who the band is, but this is one I brought to the table. And we have the three guests who are going to be, well, discussing them with me, who up until about two weeks ago had never heard of them before, which is a nice place to be on temporary fandoms. Obviously, we've got Nick um, rejoining us, um, who you have heard on several other podcasts before. Um, Chris Whitby. Hello. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing all right. Yeah, I'm good. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> and also joining us for the first time is a guitarist of Delta Sleep, who I think we could describe as 
mathematician rock. I mean, I don't know. I'm too old. Um, Glenn Hodgson. Hey, Glenn, how are you? Hey, not too bad, thanks. It's uh, protractor rock is the correct term. <laughs> See, I'm way too old for this stuff. And um, Delta Sleep, I uh, mentioned it in the doobly-doo, have what, Soft Sounds was the latest release, um, a collection of live recordings from around the world. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Well, one of those was in Japan, so... Quite looking for, I was looking forward to getting into this band, actually. Perfect. You see, everything just comes together. It's Everything's connected. It's like The Wire. Anyway, <laughs> um, you're going to hear the normal stuff. There's going to be me talking you through only four albums, and we'll come back and have a roundtable. And, well, I guess you're going to hear me after this. Fukuoka, Japan. 1995. The same year I took my one and only Japanese language class, Number Girl were formed. The name was a combination of two previous bands, Number 5 and Cowgirl. From what I can gather, they played one show and disbanded, but the name lived on. Guitarist and singer uh, Shutoku Mukai pulled in drummer Ahito Inazawa from the local alt-rock scene, and bassist Kentaro Nakao, who in turn brought along Hisaku Tabuchi, who was working as a light technician at a local venue. Oh, my pronunciation is going to be shocking, by the way, but deal with it. They threw out a couple of demos and were snapped up by indie label Automatic Kiss, and eventually they released their debut, 1997 Schoolgirl Bye Bye, with a non-album single to follow in Drunken Hearted. Now before we continue, let's broach the subject. I don't understand the Japanese obsession with schoolgirl iconography. I've, I've watched various bits of anime, battle royale, etc, etc. And listening to the first album, I don't know whether it is, as some claim, a nostalgia for the innocence of youth. Before people become, as they say, salary men. Or whether there is just something genuinely creepy about it. I don't have a clue, but would like to think it's the former rather than do that western sneer at something I'm not sure I understand at first listen. But we will leave the band's response until maybe the next album. Anyway, Schoolgirl Bye Bye. Shonky, dodgy production, hugely derivative of their US post-hardcore influences. The opener, Omoidi in my head, um, has catchy guitars. Iggy Pop fan club is, is basically gigantic by the Pixies. September Girlfriend sounds like it was recorded in someone's garage. And these songs do feel like they might fall apart at, at times. I mean, they sound like your mate's band. Not the shit one. Not the amazing one. The pretty decent one. It's a slice of US alt-rock, but with a slight Japanese flavour. It's a curio. I mean, it's shonky as fuck. And it is their worst album. But there are enough moments that make you think something good is coming. As a quick note for those listening to the Spotify playlist, this album isn't there. So there's a couple of tracks that appear later in compilations just to make up the numbers, but full links are in the uh, episode description. The music scene in Japan in 1999 was growing, although slightly different flavors depending where you were. Tokyo at the time seemed stale, though Kyoto seemed to be the home of DJs and electronica, and Japanese hip hop was on the rise in Sapporo. But the sound from Fukuoka and Number Girl was what brought the sonic guitar sound into the capital. Number Girl toured, toured a bit more, and then after playing a bunch of gigs in Tokyo's live hotbed, the Shimokitazawa district, 
They soon attracted the attention of A&R men and signed to Toshiba EMI in 1999 and released their first major label single with Tommy Shouju. This was followed by 1999 Schoolgirl Distortional Addict. This album took their raw sound from their debut, honed it, and it's an album that perfectly encapsulates their early sound. It keeps the hiss and chonkiness a little bit to create a live feel, and tracks like Pixie Do crackle and wear their influences on their sleeves, creating what Shutoku Mukai called hysterical pop. Their live shows were, by all reports, legendary for their volume, ear-splitting distortion that My Bloody Valentine would be proud of. Hardcore bass lines, melodic indie rock guitars, driven by lead guitarist Hisako Tabuchi, improvising and thrashing over Shutoku's steady yet distorted rhythm. At this point, we're going to go back and properly address the schoolgirl thing. This album cover, drawn by Mukai himself, has gun-toting schoolgirls, reminiscent of that year's smash book, Battle Royale. And looking at some of the song titles, such as <sighs> Young Girl 17 Sexually Knowing, it's easy to come to a conclusion and dismiss this as yet another musician with Sailor Moon fantasies. Interviewed in 99 uh, by the Japanese Times, he said, Yeah, everyone asks me that. Schoolgirls are a kind of obsession, but it's not a sexual thing. They become a symbol of a generation and the mood of the times and I wanted to approach the modern world from a very cynical point of view. But I do have a fantasy about samurai. They were very stoic and had strong identities and values. Maybe that's what I lack. Just like some kids idolize Batman or Ultraman, I have this sort of connection to samurai. Like other Japanese art at the time, the aforementioned Battle Royale, um, and multi-award winning Japanese singer Shino Ringo, this was the pre-millennium album full of nostalgia, but also wrapped up with tension about what was to come. Later that year, they played Japan Night, not patronizing, at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. And watching the footage, Shudoku looks like a 25-year-old maths teacher, while Tabuchi looking like a typical US college girl, hair bobbing and guitar shredding, all held together by some insane work on drums and bass. Would they break America? Probably not, but they did bring something or someone back with them. Later in 99, they released what was to be the first of many live albums, Shibuya Rock Transformed Jotai and the Destruction Baby EP, besides showing off their live canon. However, in the studio, things were going to change for our plucky Japanese pixies. And they came to the attention of US Big Shot producer David Friedman, fresh off producing the Flaming Lips, Mercury Rev, Mogwai, and he was on a roll. As a side note, Wikipedia has Friedman down as producer to Schoolgirl Distortional Addict. Um, this is not true. He joined them for the Destruction Baby EP and stayed until the end. He did retrospectively remaster the reissue of Schoolgirl Distortional Addict, but by that time he was full Friedman and turning everything up to 11. Anyway, with single Urban Guitar Sayonara and 2000 album Sapu Kai, this collaboration really took shape. The early influences are still there, but they are deeper, better produced, darker, and with much more depth. Gone is the hysterical nostalgic pop. And here comes more cynicism, railing about society, and the optimism seems to be gone. 
The sound remains pure number girl. Guitar solos, driving bass, speed and key changes. But there's now something else in there entirely. The title translates as tastelessness. And a lot of the singing is now replaced by screaming, raw anger, reminiscent of the Pixies again, Black Francis. As an album, it takes the band in a new direction, yet still holding on to their core sound. A move that would continue as we move towards the band's big finale. Friedman is back for 2002's Numb Heavy Metallic, his first album after properly hitting his peak as a producer uh, with Flaming Lips, Steve Bashimi Battles the Pink Robots. Sorry, Yashimi Battles the Pink Robots. Number Girl had toured in the US with uh, Poly6, essentially the Japanese Devo, who are still putting out insanely good stuff to this day. And they returned to Japan as one of the biggest indie rock acts in the country. The band had evolved musically, thematically, culturally, stylistically. And so when they released their, what was to be their final album, it was at the peak of that evolution, bringing in Japanese vocal styles, big traditional Japanese drums, math rock guitar, spoken word rants, all wrapped up in those melodic post-hardcore guitars. This album is fierce, it swoops, it falls apart, it gets back up, and I genuinely believe gives us something unique. It is bold, considering they were indie rock darlings. It is confrontational, offering criticism of Japanese society in a way none of their peers were doing at the time. And it is a perfect swan song. After major Japanese touring to support the uh, album, bassist Kentaro told the band he wanted to leave. So they announced they'd wrap up the tour, play a final show and call it quits. They ended their final show with the opener from their first album, Omo Idi in My Head. And this is a fitting, symmetrical bookmark for a band that have influenced many in Japan, yet no one seems to know about them. Hello there, welcome back. Uh, it's Temporary Fandoms. I forgot to mention what episode it is earlier on, but we've recorded so many and we're not sure which order they're going out. It's episode... Uh, uh. Um, we are looking at Japanese band Number Girl. Um, still with me is, as usual, Nick. Hello. Uh, Chris Whitby. Hello. And Glenn Hodgson. Hi. And, well, we might as well get cracking. Um, before we start, there's going to be some terrible pronunciation of things and a distinct lack of knowledge of Japanese culture by a good chunk of the panel. Not, no offense is intended um, to anybody, but it might happen. But then again, we probably offended our only German listeners during Cannes, um, <laughs> or, or I did. So we'll, we'll see how this works. Um, so, Number Girl. Um, a few weeks ago, I asked everybody here um, to listen to this band, um, which I think for the first time for everybody, um, a band that were formed in the 90s, uh, in, in Japan, um, lead singer uh, Mukai Shutoku or Shutoku Mukai. I don't know which is supposed to be first and which is supposed to be last because in Japan the surname comes first. But most things I have read refer to him as Shutoku, so that's what I will do. Um, massive influence from bands such as Huskadu, the Pixies, um, a lot of sort of post melodic post hardcore stuff that maybe was quite common in in the US in the early nineties. He brought over with his band 
um, to Japan sort of late 90s. Mm. It's a band that existed for five, six years. Um, but apparently, according to the five pages of the internet that I can see, um, have had massive impact. Um, okay, so we're going to start off with um, the first album, which was uh, indie, on their indie label, Automatic Kiss, yeah, Schoolgirl Bye Bye, uh, a schoolgirl motif we're going <laughs> to touch upon yeah. a few times. Um, <laughs> it was 1997. It opens with Omaide in my head, which I think is basically a, a fucking great Pixie song. Um, and it just bangs away. Not, it, it's nothing crazy. There's nothing out there. We've got the Pixies. Um, I'm going to go straight to you, Nick, because um, you had reticence well, with, with this. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know if I ever actually told you this, Ewan, and uh, now seems as good a time as any, but I don't actually like the Pixies and Husker do all that much. <laughs> and most people assume that I will because of other things that I like from the period of music of a lot of the stuff that I like. It's not fair to say I don't like them. I just don't, I don't feel the love for them that other people do. Um, and as are often the case with bands that we look at when it's, you know, if, if there's a lot of love for them from other people, I kind of, I want a bit of it. I want to know why I don't like it. I try and try to understand that. But um, so Pixies in particular, I always think I should like them more than I do. Anyway, sounds a lot like the Pixies and Husker do, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> but also, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm going to be honest straight up, straight up that I kind of, I struggled a lot with these records to find a way into them. And I certainly didn't really connect with any of them until the third and fourth albums um so these first two albums are for my, to my ears um kind of essentially indie landfill and and <laughs> but but at the same time i feel that i I'm, i don't want to be too hasty to dismiss it because i feel if i understood more about the band the cultural context the language i might find a way into these songs but from music alone, I'm not. I'm not quite getting there at this stage. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll come back to the cultural stuff from what we can gather after we sort of have first impressions from everyone. Chris, um, you have come on before and read out from your 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 notebook of there it is. There's the notebook. What are your notes on the opener on the opening album? Uh, Schoolgirl, bye bye. Uh, I should add to this that I listened to two, three, and four before I listened to one which might be a temporary fandom school by error. So, so I'm going to do it in the context of that, that I think that um, this one doesn't really do them justice, I think. Mm -hmm. I think there's a much bigger, there's a really big influence that we've not mentioned yet, which I'm not going to mention until the second one, that kind of comes through much stronger. And I think they get much better when they- Is it uh, Shellac? When, uh, I've not, got Shellac written down. It's not, it's not, it's not Shellac, uh, but okay. it's very, very close to that. I um the thing that really as I have done other podcasts, you know how much I love to just reference another band to help me try and understand another band. And the one for this for me was definitely like um you know when you heard Trailer Park by Ash, and mm -hmm. you kind of were like, well, there's a band in here who are quite good, but they haven't quite done it yet, and you know something better is going to come. That's how I feel about this. It's basically Trailer Park by Ash, but Number Girl. That's how I feel about it, and I feel like it's just very jangly. There's a few bits there. There was like almost like twee at points as well, actually. And I just found it a little bit. It's just a standard college rock album of that time, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? You would oh. kind of, yeah, that's it, basically. If someone gave it to you and they, you know, when you were at college, you were like, yeah, it's fine. This is good. But yeah, it's kind of a bit neither here nor there, my feeling. 
I mean, I would say, I mean, like, I, I mean, I don't know what 1997 was like for Japanese indie kids, but I don't imagine uh, all of them were aware that or that that aware of this sort of style. And um, apparently, a lot of the music at the time was very heavy or it was very jangly, but there was no guitar-based jangly, and this was one of the first few to come through. Um, Glenn, I mean, this is, I mean, you're, you're on the podcast with myself and Nick, Nick and I. This. The Pixies were our age, even if he didn't like them. Well, I think the comment that you said about Pixies is kind of interesting because, like, so think about how many times people actually mention the Pixies and are like, like, even when I was younger, right? When I was like 17, 16, 17, you know, people being like, oh my God, Pixies are like the best band ever. And then I listened to it and I was like, this is kind of like, not shit, but it's like nothing special. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Like, right. Try, try showing Pixies to someone who's never heard them before and be like, oh my God, this, this band really changed like guitar music. Mm-hmm. And then you show it to them and they'll be like, what? Like, are you kidding? Do you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. like, that's not to say I don't love Pixies because I do, but I definitely remember maybe I felt like that when I first heard it. Like, what? Like, what is all the fuss about with this? Like, it sounds yeah. kind of like they're half assed, not half assed playing, but like full of mistakes and. But obviously, it's part of the charm of Pixies. But I can totally understand why, because they're so like so hyped as like this band that inspired Nirvana, and everyone knows how influential they were. And you know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah totally. I mean, but even on this, I mean, this, there's a lot of bands who say the Pixies were uh, a band who have been a reference point for us or an influence for us. It's rare to hear something that is we like the Pixies. Listen to this. This sounds like the Pixies. I mean, Iggy Pop fan club is gigantic by the Pixies. It has the same rhythm. It has the it's same true, yeah. chord changes. But when, I'm, when I've got this on, when I've been cooking or washing up recently, I'm bouncing around the kitchen, even though I know it's derivative because yeah, okay with derivative. it's derivative of something I liked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Derivative of a thing you like is a good thing. I'm, I'm, that's fine. I think what I found difficult about this first album was that, you know, like how I was saying that when you show Pixies to someone for the first time, they might be like, oh, it sounds kind of like, not cheap, but sounds kind of crappy, you know? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that was probably the thing that I struggled with the most on this first album. Like, I mean, some of my notes were literally like, like I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, <laughs> did you, did you listen to them in uh, chronological order, Glenn? I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I, I did too. And, I, and it is one of the things with the way we approach records that can sometimes do a band a disservice. Because obviously I'm going into that first record thinking, well, Ewan clearly thinks Number Girl are great. Come on, Number Girl, impress me. And then you listen to them sort of like as this sort of like juvenile record where they're still figuring shit out. And you think, hmm, it's all that, is it? Mm. You know, and you, you, you start on a kind of slightly dismissive foot, which isn't exactly I, fair. Yeah, for sure. I, I think there's definitely that. I mean, when I first found Number Girl, I th- it was only three or four years ago, I think they had some, there were reissues in the mm. US and Pitchfork, I was reading Pitchfork, uh, much to my chagrin. And there was a whole. <laughs> well, there goes our mention. Of- <laughs> whole article <laughs> yeah that's it there's our sponsorship going uh, there was an article uh reviewing um albums two three four because they were the ones that got re-released because they were the major label ones and yeah. so i listened to them in that order two three four one uh yeah. which and i will say obviously when we get to it we'll talk more about the second album the first album is shonky um it is derivative but after a while i just jangle around you know i mean and there is there a thing also when we're looking at bands um who are not from say the uk not from america not from around here who are echoing a sound that we know does there tend to be a sort of anglo-centric centric sneer you know oh look it's a french band sounding like 
Queens no, of the Stone no, I mean, I, I certainly wondered, like, you know, to what extent there would have been anyone in their audience who would be thinking, well, they sound like the Pixies. I mean, I don't know if that was a thing, but I, I, I don't know. It might have been a thing. Maybe those bands did have a following over there. I have no idea. That's the thing. I have, I, I don't, I have the context to say that they did or they didn't. Um, just, just, just as a, a side point, listener, uh, Nick didn't discover there was a Wikipedia page until five minutes before we started. What's this. Wikipedia? <laughs> Encyclopedia. The books they used to sell to your nan <laughs> on the internet. Now, um, but yeah, it is, it is a weird one, and it is hard to be to get that cultural reference. Um, I mean, there's not a massive amount to really say about the first album, except the first album got them a massive record deal. Uh, they signed to EMI um in 98 and it was in 99 where they got their first proper record uh first proper release so no more schoolgirl bye bye oh it's schoolgirl distortion addict this is probably the time before we talk about the record to maybe talk about the schoolgirl iconography and yeah i, I mean I, I don't know i'm not japanese i from what i have read um it was more of a representation of nostalgia for youth and schoolgirl being that sort of iconography. Mm. And also 1999 was the year Battle Royale came out, the book, not the movie. And so there was obviously this sort of zeitgeist globally of the sort of schoolgirl with a machine gun, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I'm going to go straight to Glenn because he seemed to grab a piece of paper while I was talking. So He's got a prepared statement. <laughs> uh, what, I haven't got a prepared statement about schoolgirls, but uh, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> he asked me to read the following statement. <laughs> But um, yeah, I don't know. The image of schoolgirls and school kids is kind of everywhere in Japan and for good or bad. Do you know what I mean? Like some of it's quite creepy and bizarre. And other times it's like, like you say, schoolgirl with a machine gun. And uh, yeah, I honestly can't explain why. I have no idea. But, you know, there's a complete fascination with it. Like uh, so many levels of Japanese culture it's yeah. like you know just the kind of school uniform look and even I think on their album cover I think I've just seen mm. it was one of the album covers but just that kind of image is quite uh it's used a lot in Japan for sure yeah it's a hard one to look at because what I've read some people use it as a, like I said a representation or a heart back to nostalgia and the first album which we just looked at a lot of the a lot of the the songs were about this sort of sweet nostalgia for youth and feeling innocent as a child. Uh, Omeoid, Omeidi in my head is like reminiscence memories in my head. Um, this album continues that motif. And I don't know whether it's nostalgia. I don't know whether it's look at the, look at the schoolgirl uniform. Um, Chris, um, when we were starting this, you were like, are we going to have 40 minutes of talking about, is this okay? Um, is this okay? Uh, I suppose... That context, like Glenn was just saying then, does help to, in the sense, it doesn't make it right, but at least it provides some context. Like, I think if you're a band based in the UK and yeah. that was your cover at any time in the last 30 years, there'd be, I'm, I'm probably, I'm trying to think if I could think of a band that has had a cover like that, which I can't, I'm sure there is some, but you would, I think you would not get much of a pass. There would be a few questions raised in a few high-level meetings, wouldn't there? But <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's the context is difficult, isn't it? I don't know. It is a difficult one. I don't know. Like you say, I did Battle Royale was the first thing that came into mind. So it's interesting that that's the kind of motif that we've taken it. Well, in the circles I would roll in anyway, have taken over here as well as your only reference point. And that's where a lot of it comes from. But is it right? 
I don't know. I don't know what, where to well, pin the my thing mask. Is, is, for all we know, they might be mocking it. That's, that's the problem yeah. with listening to music where you don't know what they're singing about. Um, well, and, and you know, there's a, a heavy motif, which ostensibly is something incredibly creepy and makes you think, I'm not sure about this. But maybe if you understood it, you'd think, oh, yeah, I see what they're doing. I don't know, though. They're probably not doing that. It's probably just creepy as fuck. No, no. From what I've looked, I mean, and I did, I did send around a link of, of, or basically everything translated. We'll put a link in the episode description, and somebody has translated and added some cultural reference points yeah, to to some of the songs. And it does seem that the whole schoolgirl thing is nostalgia. And if you follow the band's lyrics to the four albums, we get from innocence to sort of slightly sort of late teens pissed offness to outright anger, to full on sexually knowing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Song that's, title. Oh god, the song, that, that's that's this album, right? Yeah, that is uh, it. So yeah. we can talk about yeah, that one now. Yeah. Uh, what what, what have we got? We got schoolgirl sexually knowing. Yeah. Um, the is lyrics. That, is that, it's actually called young girl seventeen sexually knowing. It's very specific. It is. It's very specific. Is it young girl parentheses seventeen? Like you know, not that not that <laughs> young. She's not a baby. <laughs> it's not a child. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also, how old were they then? You know, yeah, that's the question. Because that also changes the context. Ask. You know, like I'm 47. If I talk about 17 year old schoolgirls, <laughs> people, you know, are going to ask questions. But if they were also in their late teens, then it's slightly different, isn't you it? You kind of get the feeling that it was. It has that kind of, like you said, youthful college rock album. Yeah, I yeah. mean, that said, I mean, a lot of college rock bands now, you, you know, <laughs> you take a look at them, they look like a, you know, a bit of a state. I mean, I'm pretty um, sure. I'm pretty sure even during the 90s, I mean, college rock bands I, were I mean, actually I, I, men. I will say, if, if you look at the translations, I mean. I mean, I'm going to read this. I mean, obviously, in that sort of comical Japanese to English translation that never sort of works very well. Um, we've got the first verse is about the sky's color has a UFO, uh, red light, house cat. Uh, I knew since childhood there were many house cat, house cat girls. Maybe, don't know what that is. Then he shouts, girl 17, sexually knowing twice. And then about a man in a worthless situation, sitting in town streets forever, looking from the rooftops. What did that victorious crow silhouette know? And then repeats young girl <laughs> 17 sexually knowing. I mean, it doesn't sound like he's sort of leering in a St. Trinian's type way. We don't know. I mean, okay, we could, we, sorry, Chris. I don't know. If you've got silhouettes, that's dark. There's some, you're in the dark. There's, a, there's some questionable motifs going on there. I'm not sure that they're helping themselves with those. Uh, with those lyrics. I was just thinking, I'm hoping that somewhere in, in Japan, there's a Japanese podcast where they're pouring over uh, uh, fall songs, trying to work out if Marky e. Smith was a paedophile. And then someone's going, that Blur Country House video, they're all dressed as schoolgirls. The thing, thing is that's funny about Japanese bands is that a lot of them use English lyrics every now and then. It'll be like all Japanese, like you don't understand this other thing. And then suddenly it'd be like schoolboy disco, like in the middle of the song. And then it goes on to the next bar. <laughs> but it's like, it happens in a lot of Japanese uh pop stuff but i don't think we have the same kind of translation of we don't take like japanese words and use them in you know you don't get british indie bands doing that um as an aside um i live in spain and um if everybody remembers terminator 2 judgment day um the one thing that arnie was taught was hasta la vista baby right and because it was a bit it was in spanish now in spain the spanish version doesn't have hasta la vista baby because it's obviously dubbed in Spanish. They have Sayonara Baby. Ah, uh, okay. And it's this whole thing of just throwing this... That, I mean, that means nothing to what we're talking about. I just... It just popped into my head. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there is a thing... And funny what you said, Glenn, about 
a lot of it can be in Japanese, and then suddenly there's an English bit. I don't know about you guys. I find myself just singing English stuff. There'll be one line in English, and I'll just carry on walking around singing what sounds like I'm hearing, but it's obviously not what I'm hearing. <laughs> that's English, that's just English. you, Ewan. <laughs> Do you have examples of said, uh, yeah. you know, uh, experiments? That'd be great, yeah. Some freestyle kind of, uh, I don't know what your vocal styles are like, but <laughs> it'd be nice you're to like, hear that, You're actually. like the John Cage of temporary fandoms, just <laughs> experimenting and just saying what comes into your mind. That's it. Wow, you're warming well, yourself. Having a drink. He's, he's, well. he's, he's, yeah, so he's got the orange juice out now. He means business. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone, he's getting ready. Let's just give you a little bit quiet, a little bit of space. Anyway. Oh, um, fuck it now. Go on. So, okay, let's go to the actual album itself. I mean, there are going to be questions we don't know about context and, you know, who knows. Um, the last album, obviously, it wore its heart on its sleeve. This album, I mean, there's a song called Pixie Doo, for fuck's yeah. sake. Pixies, Huskadoo. I mean, you couldn't, really get much more than that. It's like the fall had I am Damo Suzuki. I mean, yeah, yeah. shouting out to your references in that way is, is quite a nice thing. It's, it's 36 minutes long. It bangs away with loads of catchy, catchy, catchy tunes. Um, Was it Tumei Shoju, which I think is Transparent Girl, is an absolute banger. Um, Chris, you've just put everything on mute. I'm going to ask you to unmute because you said there's another band you're going to mention for this album. So I'm going straight to you first. Uh, Sonic Youth. Okay, that's it for me. It just sounds like you know all those songs, um, kind of towards the end of Dirty and a lot on Goo, um, where they're just basically like full on, just like really fast, like kind of like jangly but really distorted, pounding drums. It's all very like Tom heavy. Just it just sounds exactly like all the good son, not good son. They're all good. The Sonic Youth songs, but. Uh, particularly like powerful Sonic Youth songs. Um, yeah, no, totally. Um, Glenn. Yeah, I actually, th- they reminded me a lot of one of my favorite bands, uh, which the acronym is I Quit Top, but that stands for, uh, and you will know us by the Trail of Dead. Um, yeah, yeah. They actually had a very similar uh, to the Sonic to the Sonic Youth feel because I feel like Trail of Dead covered that kind of driving Sonic Youth sound. But definitely, uh, I don't know if you know Trail of Dead, but there's a song of theirs called uh, Flood of Red which has a real, uh, it's like some of the heaviest like post-hardcore sound, but that was like a real formative band for me. So, I mean, I only really noticed it the second time listening when I was listening with like proper headphones and stuff. And I was like, oh, actually, a lot of this does remind me a lot of Trail of Dead. And I don't know, this, that second album just has a much more, cons- not, I don't know if concise is the word, it's just a bit more purposeful, each of the songs. I, mm-hmm. I would agree with purposeful. And I think, yeah, Trail of Dead's a really good reference because like, the other thing that I really thought about this album is it really sounds like a band like playing live in a room. Like it sounds really direct, really driving. And now you said Trail of Dead, because I was trying to imagine what they would look like live, like what kind of atmosphere it would be. And I, not, yeah, I think I remember seeing Trail of Dead at Leeds Festival once and it was just chaos. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It was just like really tight, but there was just this real ferociousness to it. And I think that's a great reference. Yeah, I think you're right. Totally. I totally agree with that. No, I mean, no, I, I, I got the Sonic Youth thing. There was a bit of, what's it, the guitar from, what's the one where Chuck D phoned it in? Cool, cool thing. thing. There was a bit of cool thing about some of the guitars on, on here. Um, I mean, we've got, we've got like, Shotoku Mukai, who's the singer, but uh, Hisaku Hamachi, again, pronunciations, is, um, I mean, if I was 17 and I got into this band, she would be my guitar crush. 
you know, she's amazingly talented. Um, on this album, both her, uh, Kentaro Nakaro and Ahito Inazawa, uh, the bassist and drummer, they seem to be able to do more a little bit. Uh, they are tighter. This is a proper label debut. This is a band that go, hello, this, this is my band. This, this is what we're about. It takes what they did in the previous one and sort of expands on it, but doesn't really go too far. Um, Nick, you, well, you got through the first one. You were like, <laughs> oh, God, I've got to listen to this. But then I did make you and listen to Can and 33 Fall albums. That is um, true. That is true. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> so, so where were you on this one, Nick? Um, well, like I, like I say, I, I I was still not quite there with them. Um, I didn't find much. This, it's more the sort of thing where you listen to a record and there's not much in the way of individual tracks that I connected with or I could talk about. So, you know, there's, there's things I like about it. There's sort of, there is that sort of sense of a, of a band that always sound on the brink of falling apart. And I, and I like that. Uh, that's, that's a, a nice thing. And I understand that this was a fan favorite as well, which is kind of interesting because for me, I much preferred album three and four, but I'm just wondering if, Again, in in the context of their fame in Japan, if this was like when they just suddenly broke massive, so this is the point people fell in love with them, and that's why this is people's favorite album because that tends to be how it works. Yeah, this was, from what I can gather, the commercial, the initial commercial success. It's the most commercial in mm-hmm. terms of it's tight and less experimental that you get, or heavy as you get later on. Um, and so, for a lot of people, this is the album. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most of us, when we were putting this, when I was putting this together, I thought most of us are probably going to veer towards the latter end. But this was my gateway. This was the one I got into. Yeah. I went, oh, hello. Well, I like this. And 30, 36 minutes, done. Yeah. yeah, I'm a big fan of that 36 minutes thing. This is definitely the kind of album that if you went for 46 minutes, yeah. pretty much. Well, I feel like yeah. that's the mistake they made on the first one. Yeah, like, I, I agree. Mean, with some of my overriding notes here, I've got like, uh, just like long repetitive on the whole <laughs> but um, and not to say weirdly, i didn't i didn't like it but some some of the production on that first one i was really like what i mean did you guys notice some of the weird like song two at the end of song two it just randomly fades into a new song and then fades out really quickly and it's like <laughs> wait what was what was that They're completely <laughs> yeah, yeah. unrelated and then i know song four is like like i love uh japanese I, I, like what i consider like a japanese uh drum sound like there's so many bands that are I've released stuff in the last five or 10 years that I would say really have this Japanese sound and it's all about like open roomy drums and stuff. But uh, the drum sound on song four, it's like so distorted. I wasn't sure if it was like my YouTube version that I had, but I actually thought, no, no, this is definitely a choice that they've made because the other songs aren't like that. It's just like almost like they've pumped everything up and they're like, yeah, it sounds great when it's distorting like that. And it's like, no, it doesn't. It sounds terrible. I had this uh, we, on this album as well the song go back to early on the young girl 17 sexually knowing to give it its full title every time that we deal with it um, <laughs> I had this weird thing with that song where um, I do this thing with some friends where we share a playlist of songs every two weeks so we you know these are the songs we're listening to uh, yeah I know disclaimer on this one uh, but I found every time I played the album this one which was a lot every time that song came on I was like this song is an absolute banger it has to go on the playlist I realised I'd done it every time but for some reason every time I heard it. It was like I'd never heard it before. And I was like, I can't believe how good this song is. It was quite weird, which is quite <laughs> okay. unusual because sometimes with, obviously when you're listening over and over again, you have to get a bit um, uh, sanitized to it or anesthetized to it. But I did find with this one, there's something about it where, yeah, I don't know. Every time there was one that stood out, well, that one stood out every time. Other one stood out more than last time. And it did have like a, 
an excitement to it. Like I can imagine if you were, like I say, if you're 17, 18 and you heard this, not to down, not saying it all about age, but like that, at that time, I can imagine hearing this at college and think, imagining this would be an amazing album, like a massive thing that had a big impact. And the videos of their live shows, I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, I, I lived in various parts of the UK and I've been, or I've been to live shows in various parts of Europe. Some, some, some audiences stand still, Brighton, I'm looking at you. Some audiences leap around and jump around the Midlands and the North, I'm looking at you. Um, videos of Number Girl live gigs, the crowd goes fucking wild. Yeah. They are up and, up and bouncing. I mean, whether or not that's a, a cult. Glenn, you played Japan. Tell me that your your audience was bouncing around or were they standing uh, I was kind of hoping that you would ask about Japanese audiences because it's the most unusual uh, experience, I think. Like, so usually, even in the UK, you know, you'll play a song and afterwards people are like, Whoa! hopefully. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. You know, and there's a, like a bit of chatter, some like drinks clinking and, you know, then you'll turn to your mate and maybe like, oh, you know, you'll say something. In Japan, it's like, ah! and it's like totally dead. It's the most <laughs> unusual, like, as in they'll cheer and it's like, Shh! and then like wow. literally as if someone's died in the room and, and it's the most like disarming silence ever because you're like, like shit, I, is everything okay? Like, they like it. No, no one's talking. Like they're completely silent. And it's like it's just a, a, like a kind of Japanese cultural thing at gigs to show respect or whatever. But um, yeah. from the stuff that I saw for Number Girl, I mean, I'm sure if you were there, you would actually notice it. And then people are like, "Yeah," and it looks like they're going absolutely crazy. And then it's complete silence. Like not that no one's drinking, but they don't have the same drinking culture that you have in gigs in the UK or the US or Europe or whatever, where, you know, you go out to have a beer with your friends. I was interested, actually, because you said a minute ago that this was their late major label debut. You said they got signed to EMI, which obviously is a pretty big label. Was that, do you know whether there was a period in which they were like gobbling up bands of a certain type in a certain part of the world, or they were unusually that they got signed to it? Were they like a, a, an outlier in that? Um, from what I can gather, that it, there wasn't a, um, there wasn't a massive sort of hoovering up of bands like them because at the time, um, there wasn't a lot of stuff really like that. There was the harder, there was, I think Japanese music was what, um, Cornelius and, um, who, oh, I forget the name. That's me. <laughs> Sorry, I'll edit this, I'll edit this out. But Japanese music wasn't particularly indie melodic. Um, yeah, Cornelius was that kind of sample, not sampleadelica or whatever they called it, but that sort wow. of uh, really, I mean, I literally, I love Cornelius, but I was reading about him the other day and he, they, that was a term that people used at one point. It was kind of like almost glitchy band uh -huh. sound, you know what I mean? But I guess because Cornelius was getting big at the same time as things like electronic music that yeah. hadn't um, really turned it then. From what I could gather when I was doing a little bit of research, like they, they, they basically got quite a high profile in the indie rock scene, uh, AMI signed them, and I think they played South by Southwest in the UA in the US that year as a not condescending Japan night. Um, so obviously they wheeled out all the Japanese bands yeah. uh, uh, for that. Because one. I think that's interesting because when you first um, suggested them, just like that indie rock sound is not obviously I'm, I'm I'm at the risk of just generalizing, but it's not a sound I associate with Japanese bands because. You know, the sound that is the most kind of, let's say, the Japanese bands I would like in my kind of other listening would be things like Boris, Merzbo, 
Acid Mother's Temple, you know, um, the boredoms particularly actually kind of fall down that kind of more noise experimental. So it was surprising to hear a band. There are a couple of other reference points, I'm going to come back to them later, but it was quite unusual to have a band like that from Japan. I just can't work out whether, I suppose it's, dis- it's a discredit to them earlier on to not really take into consideration how much that might have been unusual to have that kind of, like you say, the college rock thing is quite interesting because that time, going back to the Sonic Youth thing, you know, there was a bit of a spreading of boredoms around the world. Yeah, no, no, totally. Um, if anyone's got anything else to say about this album in particular, Glenn? Yeah, I mean, I feel like this was what, 1999? Yeah, I feel like in 1999, that there was like quite a big wave of post-hardcore from the United States anyway. It's like more established bands from maybe the late 80s, early 90s, like Fugazi and loads of that kind of DC hardcore stuff. It's like that had really germinated in places like the UK, Europe. So it was quite natural that you'd get bands popping up that in that country would be like, oh, this is a completely fresh sound. But um, I think it's kind of a bit of a testament to how, I mean, this is why I love post-hardcore because I do. It just makes, it makes that kind of music quite accessible because it's, it's actually quite simple music. So mm-hmm. in the same way that punk rock or post-punk was maybe 10 or 20 years before, 30 years, whatever. It's just like quite an accessible kind of music that people can pick up a guitar and it's not, it's not rocket science to play it. You know what I mean? You don't really need to be a, like a jazz or particularly trained. You can learn them yourself. And that's probably why, uh, you know, you start getting bands like, uh, um, bands like Number Girl in Japan. And then also the bands that Number Girl inspired, you know, they would see this band playing being like, you know, I could probably do that. You know, let's try it. Yeah, absolutely. And also other influences that, uh, Shutoku Mukai has, has cited were things like the Ramones. So the mm. idea of just picking up a guitar and going, yeah, I can do that. Exactly. Um, yeah. we'll, we'll come to the influences or their influence on other acts, if you don't mind, at the end, because uh, I think that's a good conversation point when we, when we sort of try and wrap up. Um, so, I mean, it's hard to say that you have a least favorite music producer. I have a least favorite music producer. Um, and it's David Friedman. Now, David Friedman was responsible for some amazing flaming lip stuff and then turned up at other bands and turned everything up to 11, like literally all the sounds, this goes up, all the noise, all the noise, all the noise. And David Friedman turns up for the next album. They get a big US producer. And to be fair, he's slightly restrained. It still sounds like Number Girl. There have been bands he's turned up at and their sound has totally disappeared. But now we're moving into 2000. Uh, Sapukai, which translates as tastelessness. Yeah, I understood they wanted to call it schoolgirl Sapukai. Did they? (laughs) No. Um, And now it's an album that the nostalgia's gone. It's an album he's starting to rant and rave about uh, urban squalor and pessimism and the the, the optimism of of the nostalgic tracks and the, the Huskadoo in, uh, indie Pixies vibe is sort of starting to disappear. I mean, it's not where they're going to end up, but it's definitely a marked change for them. I mean, musically, things start to really shift here. Um, Nick, you said earlier on three and four were where you, were st- you started to warm. I had you yeah. penned at four. In my head, four was where I was going to get you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. For me, for me, the one that I've gone back to the most has been, has been three. Um, in fact, to the to the extent where it's like you know, as as temporary fandom sort of immersions go, it's only four records. So I've been constantly saying, look, it's not difficult, Nick. You can you can you know get get your head into these records. And I kept going back and listening to this one again, 
but constantly thinking, I should really be listening to the others because I know this one now. But anyway, I, I just, I, I genuinely like this album. It's my, it's my favorite of the four albums. Um, it's just, to, just to my ear, a lot more interesting stuff going on. The songs have interesting textural things happening. Um, maybe a little bit of sort of a post-punk sound, which is kind of, you know, as you know, more in my comfort zone. But, um, and also it's kind of, when I first sort of started to really like it, it was the latter half of the record that really grabbed me as well. It was one of those things where you're about halfway through and, you know, it's like, yeah, more of this band you weren't making me listen to. And then suddenly something clicked and it was around uh, Tattoo. Uh, Tattoo into uh, Sapukai, the, the title track. Love it. Love, love the guitar sounds on those tracks. Um, and there's a kind of wobbly cacophony going on through, through a lot of the songs that I just, yeah, love it. It's great. No, I think you're right about that, those tracks going into each other. And also, I've got, what is it, Zengen versus Undercover, yes. which, again, yeah. just sounds like a Google Translate. But I, that is a great, great, great track. Um, Glenn, musically, um, they're definitely shifting towards something else. I don't think they've got to that proto-math that I hear in the, the later album yet. But what do you think that shift is? Is it a band just evolving, maturing? I mean, uh, for me, they're getting into a more, I know it sounds obvious because this is an album came out in 2000, but getting into a more 2000s post-hardcore sound. Um, uh, I know that sounds really obvious, but um, I don't know, that kind of more gruff, screamy stuff. And, and it's quite an experimentally, com- in comparison to the first two, it's the production on it's quite experimental, I suppose. Like there's a lot, a lot of... Um, I think it's on track four. It's called Urban Guitar Sayonara. Oh, yeah. Is there a saxophone on it? Ah. I, thought it was, I thought it was a guitar at first, and, and making that a, weird squealing sound. Yeah, I think it's, it's I a think, saxophone. I think it's it? a bit of both. I think it's a guitar and then a sax kind of, and you can't really tell which one's which. And it's, also it's, a Kato. It sounds a bit like a piano in there, but I'm sure it's Kato, which is like a kind of plucked, almost piano style instrument, but you kind of pluck it with a, like a pick, basically. Uh, yeah, it's kind yeah, of so it's, yeah, that saxophone's kind of like no wavy, like that kind of like James Chant yeah, stuff yeah. and free oh, jazz. Yeah, definitely. That and there's something going on there. That's that's for me is one of the standout tracks. Definitely that one. Yeah, it it's it's interesting for sure. I mean, there's a lot of really good, just heavy post-hardcore stuff that I love on that album. But the first track is like one of the weakest songs that I've heard that. Uh, like in their whole repertoire, I was like, "This, this be brutal number girl." Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. yeah, yeah I've just got fir- first track underlined three times. So weak. I was like, "Why? Why did they include this song? Just start with the second track." It's like, I don't know. I just, I, I just felt, I, I felt like, the, yeah, I think it was a single as well. And I was just like, "Why?" Like all of the other tracks on this album are so good, and this one is the one that stands out to me as like a. It just doesn't sound like a, a song that should be on the album. There's already like twelve songs. Just get rid of it. <laughs> do, you, but you, do you think it's one of those things that you know as bands they, they, they often have things hanging over from previous recording sessions and often you get a band they go oh well, we didn't put this on the last album but we worked on it yeah it feels a bit like it could be from that previous era of writing stuff maybe but um because and just this this album Sepuke sounds way more concise like songs like that second track and the urban guitar sayonara maybe not as concise but the track number eight Ure I uh, just loved it. I thought it was brilliant. Um, but um, but I'm feeling very validated. Put your, put your best foot forward. Don't <laughs> put your your shittest foot forward. Um, I can't remember where it was. I think it was BBC Six years ago. There's the whole thing about how 
with vinyl and with tape when there was two sides to a record the second song on the second side was the most important song on an album it's the one that keeps you going to the end like you, you go into side two there's a, there's a great track and that next one is really really important and i do think this album finishes so well um i quite like the opener but not as much as the rest of the album but i like the previous two albums so the thing is actually in the previous two albums the opening tracks i think are brilliant like Distortional Addict and uh, the first track on uh, Schoolgirl Bye Bye, it's like almost has this really like Tarantino-y kind of cinematic feel to it. It could be like, part, you, know what I'm, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I thought when I list, heard the openers to both these. I was like, wow, they really know how to start an album apart from the third album, which they just do it. And it is only the third album because when we get to the fourth album, I think the fourth album starts fantastic. Yeah, exactly. It's like they're really good at openings and then just couldn't finish them. Oh, Chris just pulled a face. I've just, I've got, I've just got a very, got a very strong opinion that could go either way on that opening one of the fourth albums. So uh, I'll, I'll keep it up. We'll get, we, we will get to it. <laughs> we will get to it in a minute. Um, apart from, from what I can gather, at, at the time, this was when they were starting to, they, they had their fan base. Um, they were riding their wave of success. Not massive success because this type of music wasn't very popular in Japan commercially at the time. Um, but they had a loyal fan base. They were selling a gig after gig. They were touring, they were touring, they were touring. Uh, and they could have just made another one. Um, but what happened was they went into the studio and two years later came out in 2002 with Noom Heavy Metallic, um, the most experimental album they've done. An album that starts with, with him just shouting and then the drums kicking in and then a sort of very intricate guitar pattern coming in. and. I I think this is one of my top 20 albums of all time. I think this is oh. such a good album. And even though I love the second album for its nostalgia and its pixies and its husky do, this album for me is so interesting and has time for Numi Ami uh, Tapsu, which is just a great little three minute him ranting while uh, she plays amazing guitars and there's some funky bass. It's a great, 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 great album. Chris. What is this opinion you have that could go either well, way? Well, I've got two that are potentially... Um, Wait, is this like choose. Boris Johnson writing two letters about Brexit? Oh, God, I don't know. I'm scared now to say it in case that's, <laughs> that becomes my legacy in every introduction, you know, Chris Johnson Whitby. But um, has anybody... It just the first song, I don't know if it's of its time, I don't know if it's the recording, but there is... It just sounds exactly like 36 Crazy Fists the old new metal band. If anyone remembers them, they had a song called Slit Wrist Theory. Yeah. had this really delay. On, it just sounds like new metal. That's what I couldn't get over, that the, the, guitar, the, the guitar delay, there's a kind of weird effect on the snare drum as well. And I, it's not that I don't like it. It's just, it just sounds, just sounds like new metal. And I'm not, I, I, this is a whole podcast we've gone for. I think new metal is not as bad as it, everyone. It's got its refining moments. Anyway, let's come back to that. But I just think, it's just, I find it really distracting. It sounds like new metal. I just find it really distracting. And I also, I'm going to say my other opinion on other controversial opinion, but I actually like the album. That opening I find really distracting. I like, I like it. I mean, I, there might be something about somebody just shouting in Japanese uh, and <laughs> me not knowing what they're saying. That sort of appeals to me at the beginning of this album. Um, Glenn? Uh, I just wanted to say, uh, there's nothing wrong with new metal. I'm, that's, I'm, I'm with you. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm, I'm basically, a few friends of ours, and like the third, we're trying to bring it back. You know, there's moments in there. There's some great, great moments. That's all I'm saying. Again, like, 
Against- I mean, obviously, I mean, obviously, I know exactly what new metal is. But just for Nick, could you just give us a, a highlight of what class what's classified as new metal? Sort of like Scorpions and um, <laughs> the Eagles. No, no, oh, okay. <laughs> it's, uh, more like. Go on, Glenn. Sorry, no, go on. Like Slipknot and Corn oh, and okay, yeah, Deftones yeah. and uh, 36, right. 36 Crazy Fists. There's so, so many. Okay, like two, yeah, I, 2000 I, I, and what, 2000 to 2007? Yeah, seven, actually, yeah, a bit yeah, longer. Something like that. And I think that's what's weird because this came out in 2002, so I would have been in my second year at um, college at the time. So that guitar mm. sound as well, like I was, yeah. I would say around that time I was more into like, Vagrant, drive through, that kind of more emo thing, definitely. Mm-hmm. But that guitar sound is 2002. That is, you in a minute, someone's going to hit a, a snare and then it's going to kick off. Do you know what I mean? That's what's going to happen. <laughs> and I just think, so I think maybe I've just convinced myself that it made me feel nice. That's what I've convinced myself. <laughs> You're just working through your own inner conflict about new metal. Yeah, I didn't realize this was musical therapy because you know, in, no, it, yeah, totally, in a totally. minute I'm just going to come out with some outrageous opinion like Chocolate Starfish is the greatest album of all time or something. So there's well, all kind of, and then burst into tears. Yeah. <laughs> I think I that, think we just found our trailer. <laughs> <laughs> I think like uh, new metal though, right? Like new metal used to kind of ape a lot of other genres, so it would kind of take hip hop or dub or whatever, and actually. Uh, this the first track on heavy numb Meta- numb heavy metallic. It's kind of like a dub track. It is right? totally. Very it's just dubby. like straight up dub, and it almost sounds like uh, a new metal band, you know, in the studio with like one too many bongs or whatever. And then they're <laughs> like, "Yeah, that sounds great." Like put the put the echo up on the, everything. <laughs> but it's not bad. It's just it definitely sounds very of its time. It's like I think there's quite a lot of like emceeing what you might describe as like Japanese rapping or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, on the album, yeah, I mean, on I, this one, I definitely noticed a few bits when I'm like hip hop question mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is it. It's like on that track I mentioned, Numi Ami. He, he basically just rambles on like callbacks to previous episodes, like a demo Suzuki, Marky Smith in in later times. Um, and apparently, lyrically, so this album is just basically the world's gone to shit, everything's gone crazy, fuck everything, and he's just going on this sort of rant. But interesting, you talked about all these different sort of reference points at like the dub etc in this album he seems to be bringing in almost a traditional japanese style of singing mm. rather than aping a western one yeah definitely. and there were, there, there were moments it reminded me or not necessarily musically but um there's a band dengue fever who are sort of american based but with a cambodian female singer and they sort of play 1960s style mekong delta surf rock lovely i but, love the sound of that yeah oh, it's great that good. Well, having this sort of uh authentic cambodian style singing or in this case japanese style singing over western style music at times yeah was an interesting meld for me they seem to have a kind of uh not pentatonic i don't know what the name of the scale is that is that kind of asian sounding scale i think it's pentatonic i think but uh they seem to have like in their lead lines a kind of would you guys agree with that? Like a kind of Japanese sounding scale in some of the songs? Um, I don't know. For me, this was the album that started just to sound mathy mm, um, okay. or, or proto mathy. I don't know. When did math, you're a math guy. What, you, you do the math. Glenn, when did math start? <laughs> um, I would say probably the first, not the first Slint album, but Slint did an album called Spiderland. It was like 1989. Uh-huh. Yep. And then that was produced by Steve Albini, who is obviously in Shellac and produced loads of other stuff. But um, I, I think definitely that starts to come into this, like guitar-wise. Yeah, you can start definitely start to hear these intricate things. I mean, even I, I, 
Uh, Delayed Brain. That's my favorite song of theirs. Favorite, favorite song, 100%. Do you want to know why? Because it sounds like yours. I was listening to this and I've been watching your soft sound videos and this came on. I was like, who does this remind me of? This reminds me of someone. I was like, really? That's interesting that you got that. fucking Delta Sleep. It reminded me of your band. That's interesting you got that. You know what I wrote for this? I was like, I've got Delay Brain, favorite song. Sounds a bit like Bad, Bad, Not Good or like the beginning of a Dr. Dre song. It almost sounds like, you know that song, um, you know how that starts with that really big cinematic, I can't remember the name of the original track, but it's like a really like big band Quincy Jones style, like kind of big bands jazz song. Yeah, everyone knows the one you mean just from that little snippet you did. Yeah, That's yeah. It. So the beginning of that one, it's like, dun, 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 dun. Like uh, that reminded me a this, lot. Let us know. It reminded me a lot of the beginning of uh, Delayed Brain and I was just like floored by it. I loved the... Are we trying? Maybe are we it's trying because to it doesn't sound like anything else they did. Are we trying to remember the Dr. Dre song? Or are we trying to remember where he got that riff from? Well, I can't remember where it is, but I know it's like a big band jazz song. Uh, that's yeah. really cool. It's next episode, isn't it? That's what you're humming. That's the that's the yeah, Dr. Dre oh, right, one. Okay, yeah. sorry. But the, it's that sample. Yeah. And it's the same bit of that gung 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 gung. It kind of reminded me of that the intro, almost like it could have been like Tortoise or something. Yeah, that's. true. I think that's what I had. Is this, I, I, my comment was they're just wrestling with different sounds, but it's like it's not that it's a problem. It's just like there's a lot of ideas, there's a lot going on. I suppose you, uh, this I hadn't really made that link to the math rock thing. I suppose that's a similar sort of thing, isn't it? There's loads going on, and you know sometimes it can sound you're pulling from everywhere. And I don't think it's a. Um, I think it's a good thing. My other controversial opinion, which I'm going to give at this point, is and I don't know is this a Dave Friedman produced album as yep. well. Some of the yep. guitar riffs sound exactly like Maroon 5. <laughs> it's just this like really weird, like I don't, it's just a very particular high-end guitar sound that they've got a point. And it just really sounds like some of those funky kind of, it's um, mm. not that the riff is fair to be fair to them. There's just something about the production. I just kept hearing Maroon 5. And I and again, it didn't, didn't put me off them, so it can't be that bad. But there's just something about the production again that I just found... The whole album sounds like someone trying to make a monumental album that's going to be big and it's going to be everywhere, but you just end up with a weird production to it, which means, I don't know, there's something about it. I did see one of the descriptions I was reading, and this was described as their Abbey Road. Yeah. Um, basically, the let's go into the studio, do all the things that we've never been able to do. Put all the layers on. Yeah. Put everything on. Yeah. Everything, <laughs> turn, turn everything up. Should we have a bassoon? Yeah, bassoon. That would be great. <laughs> We need a biggest. We need more of a sense of dread. Do you reckon? Um, do you reckon if you do like alt rock, there's a per- an album you get to where you inevitably go full Billy Corgan. That's it. You just like seventeen <laughs> guitar tracks, every kind of sound, everything. It's definitely it's definitely what they've done there. Yeah. As in, they get more and more and more produced. That's probably why Distortional Addict is like their uh, kind of classic go to, just because it's like perfectly in between like rough kind of almost demo recording college rock and then the, the better like more concisely written tracks better produced it's, it's kind of in the middle of everything in the, on that spectrum you know i think i think you, but i think chris you, you you totally hit on the head by saying billy corgan the early stuff is early smashing pumpkins and then this is what mellow and the infinite sadness and in 10 years mm. time the lead singer is going to appear on um Conspiracy theory, right wing radio. I mean, there's, there's, there's definitely an arc that they seem to be following. Um, yeah, I mean, this apparently like surprised all the critics when it came out. It wasn't what people were expecting. The fans still loved it. Um, they 
they they weren't a band that sort of just disappeared. The the bassist um, said, "I've had enough. I'm going to go." And they all went, "Well, let's just call it quits." They played some final shows, and on their very final show, their very final song, they played the first song from the first album, "Oh My Idiot in My uh, in My in My Brain," and they were, they, the crowd are just in tears. You know, it's I mean, none of this politeness. They've done the cheering, and then you can just see tears streaming out these Japanese indie kids' faces. Of like they, they finished exactly where they wanted to with a really quite sweet little bit of um, symmetry. Can I just? I think. Do the album cover, right? So the last album is it? How do you pronounce it? Sapuke. Sapuke. It's got quite an abstract cover, right? It's black, but it's got like yeah. a white line on it. And this one, they've gone back to the uh, few questions need to be raised. I feel like they should flip the album covers around. I feel like that black abstract cover would work better on this album and the last album should have the um, the more questionable one and then they could just left that behind as well. Do you know what I mean? So it's like those two albums, the, the album, you know, I just think the album doesn't, it jars a bit. That's my feeling. That album cover, the, this album, doesn't really work. It doesn't really fit the kind of what's going on with it. Just the cover, also, you mean? Yeah, the cover, yeah. I mean, plus, also lyrically, apparently in 2002, there were no Japanese bands uh, sang social criticism. And apparently this album is all sort of social critique. Everything's going wrong. Society's falling apart, blah, 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 blah. And it wasn't really a thing. It wasn't sort of a dumb thing to do. Okay. Um, all right. So, I mean, Number Girl, they had their, they had their run. They finished, well, pretty much uh, on, a, on a bit of a high. Um, but they seem to be a band that are often cited as a legacy act in Japan, despite the fact that, I mean, I'd never heard of them. Everyone here had not heard of them until we sort of, they, they turned up sort of at our doorstep, so to speak. Um, now we did the math thing. Lead sing, the, the lead singer, lead guitarist went off and, and formed the Zazen boys who are pretty mathy. Uh, they all sort of went off and joined various little bands that have been around. Some were indie, some were funky, some were a bit more metal-y. Um, Glenn, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to you because I know that um, you toured with uh, a band who often cite uh, Number Girl as a major influence. Um, I, I'm not, I, we've, we had a pronunciation discussion. That's right. Beforehand. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everyone in the UK would call them tricots, I suppose. Tricots, trico. But uh, yeah, I mean, in Japan they're always like trico. But um, yeah, tricot, trico, whatever. Trico is what I I say. But, um, um, can you, I mean, do are they as big an influence as these I mean, man, like listening to Number Girl, I was really like, wow, like that. This band are actually reminding me of loads of bands that I've played with or that I like, like either bands that I've listened to for years, Japanese bands, um, or just like yeah, there must it must be such a pervasive influence for Number Girl because it really is. Uh, I mean, there's so many notes that I wrote when I'm like, wow, this is like like a real vintage kind of Japanese sound, like super high gain Fender tones and really airy, like Tom heavy drums, uh, almost uncomfortably. So like even in distortion, like sometimes the room sound is so much that you're like, like bloody hell, you feel like you're kind of in the room in some ways, which is, you know, it's a great effect, but yeah, this band Trico have the same kind of, I mean, so you were talking about the inf- like what it reminded you of, Chris, uh, uh, Heavy Num Metallic. And it can't, this actually reminded me of a band that I don't really know at all very well. And it's like Mike Watt and the Minutemen and that kind of oh, uh, slightly like speedy, funky guitar sound that they would sometimes get. And I know that uh, 
when I was listening to um, Heavy Non Metallic or any of these other albums, I was like, wow, they remind me a lot of Light, uh, which is a Japanese band. And I know that that band love Mike Watt and the Minutemen. I don't even know Mike Watt and the Minutemen that much, but I was listening being like, hmm, I guess this is what it might sound. It must sound like because Light sound a lot <laughs> we'll do, like this. We'll do an episode for you. <laughs> yeah, please do. Well, not on the minute. We did them on sure. the face. We, we did do them we've on done, face, we've the done Facebook. We've done the minute, man. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. they became fireholes, right? No, I do like bits that I've heard and so on. And you know, I, I like what Mike Watt kind of stands for from that band. But uh, mm-hmm. I just think that there's so many crossovers here between like underground American music and Japanese music that even I don't know, playing practice room shows or whatever. I'm I'm listening to this. Ba- I'm retrospectively going back in my mind, thinking like, oh my god, this that band was Number Girl, like like ripoff basically. And at the time, I was like, wow, that's amazing. But yeah, it's quite an impressive uh, influence, I think. I wonder if you could trace that kind of roomy drum sound, high gain Fender sound to Number Girl, because it's like '97, so it's way before anything yeah. that I've I've been listening to. I mean, it did sound just it just seemed like they imported. The sort of US post hardcore, but melodic, sort of the, the melodic side of the post hardcore, um, into into Japan where it didn't seem to exist, and then as they evolved, they brought in other Japanese sounds and and new metal and and whatnot. Um, but it does seem, from what I can gather, that this was the band that influences influences the bands that come after, almost like the Pixies other band that lots of people go oh no 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 it's because of the pixies i mean i sent quite a few messages out to friends in japan who are in bands or doing whatever they're doing and you know i, I sent maybe five out two of them got back to me really quickly being like man everyone knows number girl like everyone mm-hmm. our age and i'm what 34 33 sorry 33 uh he was like yeah everyone our age knows number girl it's like the kind of starter band for alt rock people okay. <laughs> wow wow People in their thirties, that is, you know. But yeah, I thought that was quite a big, uh, a big claim for a, a band that even on Spotify, like, it's not th- that popular. You know what I mean? And I know yeah. you can't base everything on that, but I'm but shallow. That's the so weird, that is the weird thing. Like, they don't. They seem to be massive, massive in Japan. Mm. Um, they had. They did tour the US. Everyone ignored them. Um, they got onto various Rolling Stone lists, like coming out of Asia. Um, but then, but then I think maybe because they were only around up until two thousand and two, and then they sort of disappeared. Yeah. Japanese musicians have held them up as this influence, and in the West we've just gone, what, who? Yeah. And it was only the fact that they reissued stuff that I found out about them. It wasn't because I was. I mean, I've gone down the Japanese music rabbit hole since, but I didn't find them because I'm a lover of Japanese alt rock or indie rock or whatnot. But also, when you look on Spotify, I mean, there's like hundreds of compilations like b-sides and god knows what albums and that's that's an instant sign that this is a band with massive cult appeal that are being bled dry um but that's it there, there is they released uh Omeodi in my head which was sort of b-sides and live tracks mm-hmm. um and then there was they released number two number three number four the, yeah the, I, this seems like emi did this yeah um, yeah to be honest there's not a lot of great stuff on there but there is an amazing amazing cover of a um, wave of mutilation by the pixies yeah. Um, on one of them, and also the cover of them playing "Substitute" um, on, a, on a live track. I think it's on the fourth one as well. But you've got to okay. really go into it. It was obviously well, they've gone. Um, yeah. People still like them. Uh, what what have we got in this box? <laughs> what have we got that yeah, nobody's absolutely. heard yet? Yeah. <laughs> um, weirdly, weirdly, if you're listening to this now, um, a year and a half ago they decided they were going to reform, 
um, in the in, in the words of the lead singer, um, he said, we, "We are having a call. I was pretty drunk. We need the money. Um, decided to reform and tour. Obviously, COVID kicked in, um, and everything's been put on hiatus. But they are apparently coming back to do a sort of Asian an Asian tour, and who knows what goes on, what comes out of that. I mean, mm. I think they're great. I mean, the first two I like just because I like that type of music. The second two I think are genuinely good albums, and it is nice to be able to find a band." That existed, disappeared. That I never heard of. I think it's. I think it's interesting as well because just go back to the last album with it being two thousand and two. So again, that was a year in which I was definitely reading Enemy a lot. I got Melody Maker, Kerrang. You know, as I was to college, so I was well into buying all that sort of stuff. And I was just trying to think. You know, that's an album that I would have probably liked. But I was trying to think: Are there other Japanese bands, alt rock bands, that were being pushed at that time? And the only two that I could think of were the Polisics or Polisics, who I think that these actually toured with when I was reading on Wikipedia. So it's P-O-L-S-Y-I-C-S and Mad Capsule Markets. They were the, I was thinking Mad Capsule yeah, Markets. Yeah, they're the two people were trying to push at that time, and particularly with Mad Capsule Markets. The framing of them was basically, dear UK, you've never heard something so mental as this. Do you know what I mean? It was a definite kind of different vibe they were trying to push. Whereas where this is an album that's really good, it couldn't be branded in that kind of quirky kind of way of saying and I and I don't know if that's I made a big statement yeah, I there that, but I, I think I think you've touched on something there I mean a, a lot of the things about bands that are, are marketed to coming out of Japan it's like, oh there's baby metal oh there's so much oh look these are crazy crazy things that we don't have over here and then there's oh here's a Japanese band playing sort of music that came out of America and doing it very well yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's it. And like going back, and I'm going to use a phrase, which I, I know is not a phrase, people, like the whole like Japan noise thing. You know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. again, you always want it to be, it's all like screeching and kind of chaotic and not being able to brand this band of being like that, but a band that just wrote good songs and a bit of experimental. We didn't really help them in some ways because it's like a lot of kind of like the Western music press can only kind of frame you in a certain way. And if you don't fit in that way, then you fall off the wayside, don't you? You have to be whatever that... And particularly that time, the 2000, 2002 time, it's all like every man for himself, wasn't it? <laughs> also, also the, the UK press was too busy pushing the strokes and the white stripes. That was about 2002. So mm. that was... And, that was... and Razorlight, let's not forget. Yeah. <laughs> I read... I read... <laughs> it's funny you mentioned the strokes. Someone, I read something today where someone said, everyone forgets the strokes are really posh. And I thought, no one has forgotten that, surely. You know, they were like... That's like <laughs> yeah. They were like the most kind of... Anyway, it's a different story for another reason. But yeah, it's just interesting when you think about that time. And I just really remember that framing of those bands as like, almost like when Slipknot went on TFI Friday. It's like, you never know what's going to happen next. You know what I mean? It's like, just interesting for that time that they could have been massive, I think. Yeah. I think it's interesting what you say about um, Mad Capsule Markets, that they were framed as this, like, you've never seen anything as extreme as this. Like, the thing with um, Number Girl is that they're quite a vocal-driven band, and bands like that weren't really. And I think it's always, it's not always going to hold you back. But the bands that, just like as an example, the bands that I know and love from Japan, they're mostly instrumental. Like most of them have no vocals, even though musically it actually sounds quite similar. A lot of it to Number Girl. It's just that Number Girl has those vocals, which obviously for a Japanese like college kid, it's probably everything, you know. Yeah, and I think that's it. They 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 are. I mean, even as a lead singer, he's he he's not. He doesn't look cool. I mean, he's he looks like a supply teacher, a, a geography supply teacher. Which I guess the Pixies also had that aesthetic as well. Like Weezer Mike as well. Francis, 
Hmm? Weezer as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, there's a cool band around him, and then there's just this guy with glasses and a shirt, um, sort of leading leading the way. Um, I think it's probably a good time to wrap up at this point. Um, we've hopefully, uh, if you're listening to this, and particularly if you've either listened via the Spotify playlist or you've gone and looked on Spotify um, or YouTube for the first album, you have discovered a band that you did not know existed. Um, and hopefully you can take away at least one or two albums from that. Um, and it is the essence, I guess, of temporary fandoms that sometimes you are going to find something you didn't know and you can be a temporary fan. Um, we will be returning next time with someone more popular, uh, someone you've probably heard of. Um, but we haven't recorded that yet, so we'll just not say who that is at this point. Um, so I would like to thank... Glenn Hodgson for his favourite song being the song that sounded most like his band. Glenn, thanks for coming on. <laughs> thanks. Cheers, um, thanks for having Chris, me. Chris, it's been great having you back. Uh, can you wave the notebook again? <laughs> That's for the YouTube. We don't have a YouTube. And Nick? Cheers. See you later. Bye. Thank you, first and foremost, to my more commercially-leaning co-host, Ewan. That description from a review on Podchaser by Stephen Kilroy. Thank you, Stephen. It amused me enormously. So long as you remember to give us five stars and a glowing review, it's okay to troll Ewan. In fact, I promise you, it's a lot of fun. Why not try it yourself? Seriously, though, Ewan's been itching to introduce us to Number Girl for a while now, and it's been great. Thanks for all your hard work, and thank you also to our guests, Christopher Whitby and Glenn Hodgson of Delta Sleep. We look forward to welcoming you both back to the podcast again soon. Thanks as always to Jonathan Fisher for our theme music. And until next time, I'm Nick Hilditch, and I know. I know the bystanders. I see. I see the tasteless truth.